the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. In this episode, we're excited to introduce a newcomer to the Vortex. Daniel Bear is a senior in high school, but with all the recent free time he's had thanks to COVID-19, he's managed to track down a very interesting suspect. I actually started to pursue the same suspect, but I quit before making any real progress. Luckily, Dan is no quitter and he was able to track down his suspect through some vague clues someone else posted on the D.B. Cooper subreddit. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to my good friend, Daniel Bear. Dan, when was the first time you heard about D.B. Cooper? First time I heard about D.B. Cooper. Um, you know, I, I don't remember. Ex- I've known about the case for a number of years now. Uh, just from like the influence of modern media, uh, documentaries, videos, uh, references and pop culture, things like that. Um, I didn't really start getting invested in the case until obviously with the the coronavirus, you're stuck at home. And, uh, you know, previous to that, I was involved in all sorts of clubs and sports and things like that. So I had a lot more free time in my hands than I usually do. And so I, I kind of got interested into true crime a little bit. Um, but a lot of true crime cases are, are, are kind of like murder and uh, so, sort of gory crimes. And I'm just, that that's not real. I don't really enjoy looking into those sorts of things. Um, but the D.B. Cooper case is just so different from every other crime out there, just in, in style and no one got hurt. It, and the method in which the, the hijacking was carried out is different from any other sort of crime or hijacking that's out there. It's different from even other hijackings of aircraft. It's just so different. It really stuck out to me. And I started to get interested in the different suspects and in the case. And now, now, now I'm on the Cooper vortex. So, <laughs> and what Avenue did you go down when you started to research this case? Were you looking into certain books, documentaries, websites? Well, the first thing, first thing I do, you know, when I'm researching any topic is Wikipedia. That's the first place you go. So you go on Wikipedia, you read about the different suspects and all, all the things about the case. Uh, and then, and then I went to YouTube, like everyone else at my age group, uh, watched a couple things there and then started looking at different websites, obviously, and there's quite a few geared towards specific suspects. So I was looking at uh, dbcooperhijack.com. That was a big one. Um, there's, a, I think, Bruce Smith's website, I've, Mountain News. I was looking over there. And then um, I, I tried to get on the DB Cooper forum, but I, that's kind of a 
don't know how to describe it, more more of an advanced sort of discussion platform. So I figure one of the best. <laughs> yeah, I, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah, polite way to put it. And uh, so I figure the best place you know, I jo- I joined the, uh, the the subreddit, the DB Cooper subreddit. Uh, it's, it's small, but uh, there was some good discussion happening on there, and that's how I. I found the person I'm going to talk about today is actually on the subreddit. And yeah, so I just started becoming involved on there. It was, it wasn't that big of a commitment. And yeah, so that's how I started discussing the case in more detail. And a gal who we're going to call Cindy posted on the, the DB Cooper Reddit a few months back now. When was the first time that she mentioned this? So the first time I, I was aware of it was... Yeah, a while back. Um, it was actually a comment on, I think, a post I made that was, you know, just discussing the different D.B. Cooper suspects. And she, Cindy had said, uh, well, I think my father's D.B. Cooper. And uh, if, if anyone's been on the subreddit, you know that there's a lot of that. Oh, my brother's D.B. Cooper. Oh, the guy I worked with is D.B. Cooper. And I just kind of, I, I was like, okay, yeah, you think your father's D.B. Cooper? Yeah, sure. But I decided, you know what, I'll direct message this person, you know, they probably won't want to talk to me after five minutes, but uh, that wasn't the case. And I was able to eventually start a dialogue with this person and learn more about her father, develop a sort of a sort of a circumstantial case as to why he could be considered a, a D.B. Cooper suspect. But she would not tell you who her father was, correct? No, she she would tell me. Everything you never, you know, all these very specific details about her father, but she wouldn't get give um give a name. Uh, she she told me all about his military service and um his family life, how he grew up. Um, but he she didn't want to give a name, and I, I understand that. You know, you don't want people looking into your father. I, I hate to use this word, but when you kind of advertise it like that, like oh. I think my father's D.B. Cooper and uh, you have you give out all these specific details about your father, um, especially with the Internet, you know, the, the research capabilities you have now. It was only a matter of time before I was able to narrow it down and find someone that fit the description. And I eventually, you know, t- told her, you know, I think I know who your father is. And after that, she was a lot more forthcoming with um information and discussing her father so yeah that's that's how i was made aware and who's the suspect that you started looking into dan so his name is jesse lee smith and he's he's a really interesting guy i like it there isn't a boring db cooper suspect i think we can all agree on that and he's just another For one sure. there's he's just another interesting db cooper suspect and he's he's different from all of the other suspects in a lot of ways which i'll, I'll talk about later um see so he's just a very interesting character and i don't think i would have really invested so much of my time in researching him and you know what he did if you know he didn't really fit the bill as i say because to be a, a a good D.B. Cooper suspect, you really have to fit certain criteria. You have to explain the tie particles. You have to match the physical description. Um, you have to have a motive. 
So it's not like you can just say, oh, well, my coworker looked like D.B. Cooper, but we worked at a uh, we worked at a bank together that that that's really not that really doesn't explain a lot of what we do know about D.B. Cooper. So once I was able to sort of check off certain things on the list, OK, he worked with chemicals. Uh, he had a motive. He met, met the physical description. Uh, then I started really investing my time in researching uh, about this man's life. The first question I have whenever someone says they have a D.B. Cooper suspect is how old was he in 1971? He would have been 47 in 1971. So fitting the age description, uh, and I, th- I think 47 is a very, very good age because, you know, people claim Rack Straw's D.B. Cooper. He's 28. 29. People claim um, Clans Nick was D.B. Cooper, which uh, he was, I think, 51. So there's a large range of ages, and 47 is really, I mean, they said mid-40s. So the eight, one, once I found out, you know, he was 47, that was kind of was kind of it. So where, where'd you go next? You found this guy's name. There are certain things that are starting to fit. What research do you do next? Well, once I found the name and once I told Cindy about the name, uh, I had, you know, asked, you know, would it be all right if I just asked you questions about your father, you know, what he did, uh, you know, a possible motive. And she was very, you know, yeah, sure, go ahead. And I I started to, you know, learn about this guy. So one of the main things for me in finding identifying the D.B. Cooper suspect is, of course, the tie, which is probably the best evidence we have in narrowing down a D.B. Cooper suspect. And she had mentioned before, oh, yeah, my father worked in the chemical industry. I think he can match the tie particles. Um, So, you know, I asked, you know, where did he work? And in 1971, he was working for uh, a company called Courtauld's. And what they do is they, or what they did, they're not in business anymore, but they, they manufactured rayon, which is a sort of synthetic fiber. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, can we make some of the chemicals fit? So then I, I went on to Tom K's website, uh, citizensleuths.com, and started looking at, you know, what's what chemicals do they find on the tie? And, you know, I, I saw the list, and then I started learning about rayon production. And I'm, I'm still not an expert on rayon production. Uh I got a B in chemistry. So a lot of these terms, a lot of the the files I'm reading don't make much sense. But, you know, I was able to learn that in rayon production, they do use some of the chemicals that were found on the tie. Not all of them. But um, one of the things that stuck out is they found both barium chloride and barium sulfate on the tie. And I mean, those are, they're used in a lot of industries, but they're used specifically in rayon production as agents in, in the chemical reactions used to produce it. And so I'm like, oh, that's very interesting that two of the chemicals on the tie were used in the same industry he was working in 1971. But then again, those are only two chemicals that doesn't explain the titanium and, uh, you know, they found cerium on the tie. So once I, once I found out he worked in that industry, I asked Cindy again, you know, Prior to that, did he work anywhere else? And before he worked for Cordalds, the, the rayon company, he worked at a different chemical company in Pensacola, Florida. 
And this is where things started to get really interesting in connecting some of the chemicals on the tie to Jesse, what Jesse Smith was working working with in uh, 1960s and whatever. Um, so all Cindy knew was that he worked for a fertilizer company in Pensacola. So I, you know, Google search fertilizer company, Pensacola, Florida. And turns out there's only one, which made my life a lot easier. Uh, and it was called the Agrico Chemical Company. And they made uh, synthetic inorganic fertilizers. And, you know, when I was researching Cordals, the, the Rayon Company, I started, you know, there wasn't a lot of information. There was a little bit. Um, with Agrico, the fertilizer company, I started noticing that there were a lot of articles and a lot of news article, news articles and PDFs. And I was like, you know, why is there so much interest? It turns out that Agrico and a company next door to Agrico are grouped into an EPA Superfund site. And what that is, is there was high levels of contamination going on in those facilities. A lot of pollutants, a lot of toxic materials were used and produced in those two factories. And I'm like, wow. And the benefit of that is the EPA still to this day, even though the plants closed in the 70s and 80s, still conducts regular testing on the chemicals found on that site. And so there's 20 plus, uh, you know, 300 page or whatever documents of all of the testing they did at these sites. And I found one that, you know, outlines pretty much all of the chemicals they found at the site once they closed. And, you know, I'm looking at Tom K's list of uh, chemicals found on the tie, and I'm looking at this document, and I was just blown, you know, every single chemical, most chemicals, I could just check off immediately. They found, they were finding um, titanium at the, at the site. They found uh, cadmium, uh, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing these correctly, uh, vanadium, cobalt, zinc, strontium, uh, yttrium, and, and, you know, they found a lot of other chemicals too, but those chemicals were found on Cooper's tie. And they're also in this report from the EPA at the, which they did at the chemical, at the chemical plant he worked at. And I'm like, wow, you know, this is, this is pretty big. And so I found another article because, you know, because, you know, just because those chemicals were there doesn't necessarily mean they got on the tie. You know, uh, the EPA in the report said that there were only trace amounts found in the uh, in the area. So that doesn't necessarily it's not a smoking gun. Oh, just because they're there, they could have ended up on his tie. So right. I, I found another article and it turns out because of all the, the pollutants released at this factory, um, the surround because the the two factories were back to back, Agrico and uh, I think it was called the Escambia Wood Treating Plant or something. They're back to back, both in a residential neighborhood. And so all of these pollutants and things were going into the residential neighborhoods and they, they can't have that. Um, people were developing cancer and all sorts of uh, terrible diseases from these pollutants. And I was finding, I guess you'd say, testimony from people who lived in the area saying that the uh, the pollutants released from these factories, it was 
you know, they w- would walk home from school or work or whatever, and it would be so thick they couldn't breathe. These And this was blocks away from the factory. So if you can think blocks away from the factory, you know, they had, they had to cover their faces because they couldn't breathe because of all of these chemicals or whatever. If you're working in that environment right next door or in the factory, you're definitely going to have contamination on your clothing. You're definitely going to have contamination on your tie. That, that was a very interesting thing that I found, you know. So this essentially proves that, that contamination would have been possible on clothing, like a tie. Did he wear a tie to work? So it's, I won't say it's foggy as to what his exact role is. Um, Cindy, Cindy believes he was the plant's electrician and would have uh, managed, she, she said he was either the plant's electrician or an electrical engineer at the plant. So I don't know. I don't think I found specifically with rayon, the rayon production. Um, I found a video from from the time period, the general time period, um, sort of outlining what the factory was like. And the only and it was a quick video, only a couple minutes. And the only person wearing a tie in the video was, I guess, a chemist or a scientist who worked at the plant. All of the people operating the machines. And working in the factory weren't wearing ties. They were wearing like uh, blue collar outfits, and that concerned me a little bit. But I mean, it was only a quick video. Um, I mean, I wasn't showing everything in the plant, and so I don't. He wasn't operating. He wasn't working in the factory, operating the machine or, or filling bags of fertilizer or whatever. He was working. Um, he was working with engineers at the at, at these plants. So I think it's very possible cons- also considering that it's a clip-on tie. It's not it's not a wraparound tie. It's not a fancy tie. It's a cheap JC Penny clip-on tie. I mean if, if he had to he could take it off easily, put it back on again. I think it's possible he wore that tie to work frequently. Maybe not 24/7, but frequently. You know, he showed up in it, put it on uh, for an hour during lunch, took it, put it back on again when he was leaving. So it's possible that contaminants could have gotten on the tie, and it's possible he could have worn the tie at work. Does he have any military experience? Yes, very much so. So, um, unfortunately, I doubt that I'll be able to get his records, and that's due to the, in 1973, there was a big fire at the Army Personal Records in St. Louis, the building they were held in. And he was in the army, and 80% of army records were incinerated in the fire. So it's unlikely we'll, I'll ever see his actual military records, but I was able to confirm that he was enlisted in the Army Signal Corps. And what they did, the Army Signal Corps uh, handled communications, radar, radio operations. And so I was able to confirm that. I was able to confirm that he enlisted in the army. And one of the first things Cindy sh- shared with me was uh, a video. She said her father served in in, uh, in New Guinea, and she shared with me a video. You can find it on YouTube called "The First Fighters of New Guinea." It's a very historical video. It's about forty minutes long, detailing Allied personnel in New Guinea during the war. And she said, "Well, if you go to this specific part in the video, you'll see my father for about a second. And this was before I had any other photographs of him. So when she showed it to me, I'm like, uh-huh, yeah, he's in there for a second. That could be anybody. 
um, I was very skeptical and kind of just threw it to the side. After I had photographs of him, I went back and watched the video and stopped at the point she said to stop. And I'm like, that's him. It's definitely him. So I don't doubt that he was in New Guinea. He was definitely in the Army Signal Corps. I don't doubt that he was in New Guinea. And if, if I could just for a second uh, describe New Guinea during World War II, it was probably some of the worst natural conditions that Allied soldiers had to face. Um, you think about, you know, you know, fighting in Europe, Normandy, um, those were no doubt terrible conditions, but that was more fighting-wise. Um, they had plenty of developed roads in, in France and uh, Germany or whatever. They had plenty of, there was, you know, telegraph line already set up. Uh, Papua New Guinea was a completely different story. Um, the terrain was, it was dense jungle. Allied, allied soldiers, Western soldiers had never seen anything like this. Dense jungle, swampland. Um, it was boiling hot. Uh, there were no roads. There was no telegraph wire or telephone wire. Very primitive. You had, these guys were hauling, you know, 100, 100 pound equipment through jungle trails. Uh, you know, and it, it would rain pretty much every day. Uh, if, you, if you've ever seen Forrest Gump when he's in Vietnam, you know, and it's raining buckets, that was Papua New Guinea during World War II. It was raining 90% of the year. And so, you know, if you can imagine Jesse Smith in Papua New Guinea, he's having to haul all of this heavy equipment through mud and jungle trails. And it, it was it was probably some of the worst fighting conditions. So when I hear, oh, not to mention the disease, um, malaria, dysentery, dengue fever, we're all, I mean, disease was a big problem in Papua New Guinea. So when I hear- So there's no party to hang out there. Oh, no, it was it was easily some of the worst conditions in the war. And when I was watching the first fighters in New Guinea video, you see some of that, but you don't see all of it. You see them like playing baseball and, you know, having, having fun. And, uh, I, I've, I've, I've read stories on military websites and things that wasn't the case. You know, p these allied troops were, they were, they weren't having a good time. It was, it was, it was pretty bad. Most of the, most of the time year round. Um, so when I hear the DB Cooper, you know, you know, if he landed in the woods, you know, he would have had a hard time surviving if Jesse Smith survived New Guinea, he came home in one piece, he would have had no problem spending, you know, two, three hours find, finding a road in Washington state. I, I don't think survival in the elements was, was a concern of his. It's, it's not a concern at all. I've heard people bring that up before that, oh, maybe he survived the jump, but then died in the woods. No, no, I'm not buying that for a second. He, if he if the drop zone is correct, it's a populated area of Washington State. I mean, there's roads everywhere. There's houses everywhere. I mean, if the drop zone is accurate, there isn't any direction that he could have walked and not have hit a road or something by morning. I mean, it's it's ridiculous to say that he would have died in the drop zone if he survived the jump. He got out of there. 
Yeah, I, I've looked at maps. The FBI loves to say, I was watching the Unsolved Mysteries with, and I think they had Himmelsbach on, or one of the FBI agents. And Himmelsbach was like, oh, well, you know, if you survive the jump, he's going to die. He's going to die in a stream or something. He's going to freeze to death. And obviously, of course, the FBI is going to say that. But um, if Jesse Smith was able to survive New Guinea for years, he, he, he would have been fine in Washington State for a few hours. Not to mention, oh, also, yeah. he grew up in he grew up in southern Alabama, which uh, which we'll, I guess I'll talk about a little bit later. Um, southern Alabama is a very swampy area. He he was in the woods a lot as a kid, no as as a kid, no doubt, and would have I'm sure had some sort of uh, outdoors experience prior to even joining the army. So he I I don't doubt for a second that he would have had any problems getting out of Washington state if he survived the jump. Did he have parachute experience? So this is something regrettably I don't have a lot of information on. Cindy Cindy says, "Oh yeah, you know, he he did paratrooping in in Washington state. That's what she said." I I'd love to believe that 100%. I don't know. Uh, I know Army Signal Corps training uh they went to, it was held at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, and Cindy confirmed this. Oh, yeah, he talked about being in New Jersey for training. Uh, I believe that. And then obviously he had to uh, go to the Pacific, the West Coast of the U.S., to get on a ship to go to New Guinea. Um, whether that was California or Washington, um, I don't know. Uh, I would think if you're sending, because Papua New Guinea, uh, they're still finding plane crashes from World War II to this day. Every couple months, there seem to there seems to be another plane they find either on land or in the water surrounding the island. So, if you're sending Allied troops to New Guinea, having paratrooping experience, I think, would have been a very wise choice to make, considering that planes were crashing left and right, um, and you know people. Oh, that's having, a good point. Yeah, and people were bailing out of the airplane of airplanes frequently. I, I would think, you know, you know, I, I'm, I was listening to the Cooper Vortex podcast where um, I, it was the anonymous analyst who was talking about William Smith and for the, Na- for the Navy, they had paratrooping, at least some basic paratrooping experience. And, you know, he would have been on a ship or I think he was reconnaissance, but, you know, for, if they're doing paratrooping practice or training in the Navy, they're going to be doing it in the army, sending guys to New Guinea. So I'm pretty sure he had paratrooping experience to the extent I don't know. What do you think his motive was? Motive's important when having a D.B. Cooper suspect. I firmly believe that you don't hijack an airplane for no reason. If you look at other airplane hijackings, there seems to be some kind of reason aligned with it. So Jesse Smith in 1971 had seven kids, and I obviously don't have any kids. I can't imagine what it would have been like, you know, raising seven kids. You know, he wasn't college educated. Uh, He was. I don't think he was making a ton of money. He would have probably been making enough for you know, you know himself, and you know if he had a wife or one or two kids. But you know, seven kids. He probably just needed money. If I'm being honest. He had just had about a year prior had another had a newborn, so I think just he needed money 
I think that that that's probably the motive there is he just needed money and this was the best way to get it in his mind. Because if you think about it, he if he hijacks a plane in the Pacific Northwest, where is the last place in America they are going to look? Alabama. I mean, there I don't I was skimming skimming through looking through the FBI archives they have on the DB Cooper case and I'm seeing nothing of them looking in Alabama at all. They they would have not even suspected that Cooper could have been from the south. Um they they were saying, "Oh, well, he could have been from the he's probably from the Pacific Northwest, could have been from the Midwest, maybe the East Coast, but you see nothing on the south." So, I that's think, true. I think that's what, you know, if if Jesse Smith is DB Cooper, going to the Pacific Northwest would have been the safest safest place for him. What about an accent? So, Cindy tells me that when he was, if he was going to see a doctor or um, go out in public and meet important people, he wouldn't speak with that, with a, you know, Alabama country accent. He would speak intelligently. He would speak um, sort, of, sort of without that accent. And Jesse Smith was an intelligent guy. He was worried. I mean, he was working with people with college degrees. Um, oftentimes, you know, he was he taught. He was he was teaching his kids. He he was not. He was he was a very smart guy, and you know he only had a grammar school education. At least at least that's what his enlistment record says. Is he only has a grammar school education, and some something that's interesting is if if you look on his draft card, which is available online, his signature is very artistic. And the reason I bring that up is, you know, if you have a grammar school education, you know, your penmanship is probably not going to be that great. And his signature is very, it's, it's very artistic. It's very, uh, it, it looks like he's been highly educated, just the way he signs his name. I, I've looked at other draft cards of different people. Uh, for example, my great-grandfather, who had a high school education, his signature is a lot more, I don't want to say shaky, but it's a lot more, you know. Crude. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, if that's with a high school education. My, or Jesse Smith, if he had a grammar school education, he's signing his name like Picasso. I, I, w- I would think that that guy's probably, probably pretty intelligent. Yeah, that's a good observation. I like that. What do you think about Cindy? Do you think that she's telling the truth about all this? Did her dad, did Jesse say to her that he was Cooper? The reason she believed he was Cooper at all, because I think she had no, she didn't even know who D.B. Cooper probably was until she said that her, her father had some sort of allergic reaction to medication or something and was alluding to burying the money and hijacking the airplane and things like that. So, and then once, apparently once he came to, uh, Cindy had brought it up to him. Hey, you know, you said all this. And he was like, "Drop it. We, we don't need to discuss that." So that's interesting. At first, at, yeah. At first, I was pretty skeptical because she she wouldn't, you know, she wasn't providing any uh, name or anything. Obviously, I understand that. But once I found out that he was a real person with real military experience, and everything she was saying, you know, in terms of family and things, was checking out completely. I, 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 sort, 
I started to, I, I went, I started to trust her a little bit more, trust what she was saying a little bit more. Yeah, that's a good point. Like you were saying about that, uh, that Papua New Guinea video, you just brushed it off. But then once you saw their photos of him, you went back and you were like, oh yeah, that is him. That's him. Yeah, I have, I, she shared a photo with me of him in uniform, actually, which is another point that he was, he had some sort of military experience. And, you know, the, the face in that photograph compared to the one in the video, it's an almost perfect match. So I, I believe with 99.99% certainty that that's, it's the same guy. And that would have placed him in Papua New Guinea. What percentage certainty would you say that Jesse Lee Smith is D.B. Cooper? I don't think I can place a percentage on it. I think I've, I think there's a good circumstantial case that he's D.B. Cooper, better than some of the other suspects I've seen. But I think it's a little improper for me to say he's D.B. Cooper, 100%. You know, I, I believe he's, he's absolutely D.B. Cooper because there's no physical evidence. There's no money. There's no parachute. There's no, uh, there's no physical evidence. There's no DNA or anything. So I think I, I have a good circumstantial case that he's D.B. Cooper. But I don't know if I can necessarily place a percentage on it. I, yeah, I, I just I don't think that's something I can do. What's your best piece of evidence for Jesse? And what's your worst piece of evidence? Or what's the best piece of evidence against him? The best piece of evidence, I would say, is probably the tie particles. I've been able to connect at least most of the rarer particles that they talk about to the industries he worked in. The worst piece of evidence against him that I can think of is the location. This, I mean, he had a wife. He had seven kids at the time. He lives in southern Alabama, and suddenly he would have to be in Portland, Oregon to hijack this airplane. Now I did some research on that. I do. It's it was definitely possible to accomplish during that four day Thanksgiving weekend. I definitely believe that. I didn't at first, but you know I was able to track down some airplane time or airline timetables from the period, and it turns out that uh, National National Airlines was operating flights from Mobile to San Francisco during that time period. And obviously, once you're in San Francisco. Getting a flight to Portland is not that difficult. So if he had, if he had a period of time, you know, like a four-day weekend for Thanksgiving, he could have probably gotten there, gotten out of the airplane, gone back to Portland, and back during that time period. What about the money? Cindy says that it's buried somewhere. She believes she has a general location. Personally, if the money's out in the elements somewhere. It's probably deteriorated or gone at this point. It's been 48 years now. The only way money would survive, in my opinion, this long down the road, is if it's it was stored in a safety deposit box or in a chest or or something. Um, if he had buried it, you know, maybe there's a possibility it's still out there. Uh, I don't exactly have high hopes. I, you know, it may not be buried at all. If he did it for the money, why did he bury the money? This, this is more of a personal belief of mine, and I, you know, I, I don't love speculating, but all of D.B., most of D.B. Cooper is just speculating. You kind of have to. Um, oh, I love speculating. There's a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm pretty sure he lost at least half, if not more, of the money. They, have, they found some on Tina Barr. I, I don't think it's possible for him to have successfully 
jumped out of the airplane and get on the ground with $200,000 or a, a figure close to $200,000. I believe he probably got out with half or less. Just because, I mean, it's in $20 bill denominations. It's quite a few bundles he's carrying. The conditions were not ideal. So it's pro- Most of it probably got lost. It probably flew away in the wind. And what he did have, he may, not ha- he may have gotten back home and realized, look, I only need this much. It's probably not wise for me to spend all of this money. Because, I mean, if Jesse Smith probably he was not a rich man. If he just starts going around with stacks of $20 bills, people are going to start suspecting something. So he probably took a little bit of the money for himself and probably buried the rest. I don't know, but that's that's just my personal belief on what happened. So where's the money buried? So Cindy says there's a 20-mile radius in, in the woods in southern Alabama. She thinks it could have been buried. She's not positive on it, um, and I don't. I mean, unless a bunch of the Cooperites want to take a trip to southern Alabama. I mean, there's there's a lot of woods down there. Um, 20-mile radius is a huge area. Yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, th- I don't think the money... Hypoth- hypothetically, if Jesse Smith was D.B. Cooper and buried the money, I, I don't think it's going to be found unless a family member is able to get the specific location. I, I, don't, I don't think we're going to find the money in... Alabama at all. So, I mean, that's that's just a personal belief. So the only time Cindy ever talked to her dad about this was when he was having some sort of reaction to medication. Yes. And I think that's 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 in line with other suspects. I was listening to you had Greg Gossett on and he said that he only talked to his father about it once, once or twice. That that could either be because I mean if he, I mean, with an allergic reaction, you know, he could have, he could have just been saying things, right? Um, but I, there, there's, there's too many coincidences, I think, in Jesse Smith's story that it, it can't be ignored. And I think there are suspects out there with less connecting them to the case than what Jesse Smith has. Did, did he smoke cigarettes? Yeah, I was, I was just about to uh, say he smoked Raleigh's at the time period, which makes sense. Um, Raleigh's, I, I've, I've read things of people who have smoked Raleigh's and it's, they've said, you know, it's a cheap cigarette. It's not very good. It, it hurt, it hurts your throat. And it's a perfect cigarette that Jesse Smith would have been smoking. I believe it, it's a cigarette he probably was smoking. And Cindy confirmed that. She said, oh, he smoked Raleigh's growing up. Raleigh's were cheap cigarettes. They didn't have high quality tobacco or anything. A guy like Jesse Smith, who was smoking, who's been a, who was a smoker for his adult life, those would have been the cigarettes he could afford, and those would have been the cigarettes he was smoking. So I think it makes sense that he was smoking those in 1971, and would have been smoking them on the plane. What about his eye color? The physical descriptions vary. That was another, I guess, wow moment for me. I read his World War II draft card, which is available online. It was like reading D.B. Cooper's, it was like reading the FBI report of what he looked like. 5'11", brown hair, brown eyes. Uh, the weight was a little bit off, but I mean, he, he was very young at the time. He could have gained 30 pounds when he was, at the point when he was 47. Um, 
Oh yeah, we're all a little bit thinner at uh, yeah at seventeen than we are at forty seven. Absolutely, absolutely. In the physical description, and I've seen photographs, it's it's a very very close match. And one of the things I, I'll, I'll discuss is perhaps one of the biggest things that gets overlooked in the Cooper case, in my opinion, and that's the hairline of a suspect. Um, Jesse Smith had a very prominent widow's peak, and if you've seen Unsolved Mysteries and you've seen Schaffner's sketch, he's, she's got the widow's peak being like, you know, and he's got a real bad receding hairline. Um, that's sort of what Jesse Smith looked like during that time period. And so that's probably another thing that's, that stood out to me is, okay, he, he has had, he had some sort of receding hairline to what extent is debatable. But when you see suspects like Dwayne Weber and, I'll say William Smith, they had full heads of hair. And it's one thing to claim that the suspect had a toupee on, but it's another thing to say that they they shaved off the part of their hair to make it look like they had a receding hairline. Um, that just doesn't make any sense to me. It would have had to be... It doesn't make any sense to me either. It would have had to be his either a really, really good toupee, because most toupees tend to cover up the forehead so you can't tell that you're bald. Uh, you would have had to be a high-end makeup artist to come up with something that looked uh, like you had a receding hairline. But if you were shaving off part of your hair to make it look like you were balding, it was that would grow back very, very strange. It would have been a very strange haircut and <laughs> surely noticeable um, unless you shaved yeah. your head. And that wasn't exactly a fashionable thing to do in 1971. No, not at all. I'm, I've always been uh, weary of the he wore makeup or a toupee or a hairpiece because Tina sat next to him for five hours and not sat across the table from him. She sat directly next to him and lit his cigarettes. I mean, you put a woman next to a guy for five hours, she would notice if he was wearing a toupee, she would notice if he was wearing makeup. Especially a flight attendant, because they're dealing with people all the time. Schaffner, when he, she originally got the note, oh, it's just another businessman trying to give me his phone number. Exactly. They, they, they work with people on a daily basis. It would have had to have been his real hair. And, and that's one of the things that frustrates me about Cooper Suspects is you get someone like William J. Smith, who I think there's... A lot of evidence suggesting he could have been the hijacker. A lot of evidence suggesting he contacted Max Gunther. But his I mean, he had a full head of hair. And if Tina Mucklow was sitting next to him for five hours, she would have noticed if he had a full head of hair. So that's something that frustrates me with the case. Not necessarily with Jesse Smith. He's got the hairline that matches the description, so I'm happy about that. But it's it's a frustrating piece that I think gets overlooked a little bit in in the Cooper world. Well, there's a lot of, hey, I found a suspect, now I'm going to fit the narrative to my suspect. Exactly, and that's something I, I don't want to do. I don't want to, you know, I I don't want to start making all these, oh, well, oh, well, you know, he he had some paratrooping experience, but that, that means he's, he, that means he was sky, he was, he knew exactly what he was doing, uh, Oh, you know, some some people are like, oh, well, he flew on an airplane before. That means he knew everything there was to know about the Boeing 727. 
And that just, it doesn't make any sense to me. How would Jesse Smith know about that you could jump off that plane? With aviation, when, you know, he said, fly at this specific altitude, uh, put the wings down at this specific amount, at this specific angle. I don't think that that would have been, you know, the, the common thread is that Oh, well, that, that's secretive knowledge. He, there's no way, unless he was like CIA, he would have known about that. If if the flaps... I, I don't think it was that difficult to find out about it. The, the flaps and the uh, altitude, I think if he had just read some aviation handbook at the library, he could have figured that out. The aft stairs are, is a little bit of a different story. Um, but again, I think... I believe there was some magazine that came out that mentioned, oh, well, these can be dropped, these aft stairs on the 727 can be dropped during flight. Also, I mean, that could have also been an assumption that Smith made. Oh, well, there's these aft stairs here, release them during the flight or when it's in the air. He may not have exactly known for certain that they dropped during flight, but he could have been like, these aft stairs drop on the ground, why wouldn't they drop when it's in the air? So, again, that that's speculation, but it's something to think about. Yeah, that's true. I mean, like uh, Walter Recca, that's, you know, they say that uh, Tina told him the stairs could be lowered. He planned to jump out the side. I, I think Smith was maybe flying by the seat of his pants a little bit. So when that you know, you know, when Tina asked him, oh, well, do you have a grudge against our airline? He may, it's always, it's always a big thing. Oh, well, he definitely had a grudge. Well, you know, if someone asked me, you know, do you have a grudge against this airline? Well, no, maybe I don't, but I'll just say, oh, well, I have a grudge just to, you know, have Tina stop asking these questions. So they, a lot of people play up the grudge. I, I don't necessarily think there could have been a, a specific grudge. He could have just been angry at life, angry that he, you know, had to had to work with people who thought they were smarter than him, who had college degrees, angry that, you know, he had seven kids and, you know, he wasn't making enough money. Uh, he, he could have been angry at a number of things and just said, oh, well, yeah, I have a grudge. I don't have a grudge against your airline, but I have I just have a grudge. Yeah, some people put more weight into that than others. It could just be, like you were saying, you know, the way he answered the question and the way Tina phrased it. Yeah. And it really means nothing. Or it's the whole secret to figuring out who D.B. Cooper was, but we, we don't know. Um, I, I think what you said is right, that it could mean absolutely nothing and it was just the way the question was asked and the way it was answered and now we're looking into it after the fact yeah because he didn't say i have a grudge against the president i have a grudge against the military i have a grudge against my ex-wife it was just i just have a grudge yeah it's almost well, something don't, I would don't say. a lot of people <laughs> yeah if someone asked me that i'd probably say the same thing oh, i just have a grudge all right, Dan, here's the most difficult question to answer. How did the money get on Tina Barr? I seriously think that it probably just flew out somehow and somehow ended up in the Columbia. I, I don't think 
the the Tina Bar find it's it's something that again kind of gets played up a little bit. Okay, you find it was only three thousand dollars or somewhere around there that they found on Tina Bar. Fifty eight hundred. Fifty eight hundred. My bad. So I mean, there's a couple possibilities. Uh, it it you know when he was jumping, it could have flown out and ended up. Uh, they recently debunked the Washugal washdown theory or whatever, but it could have flown out. Someone could have found it and buried it at Tina Bar. He Cooper could have gotten on the ground, uh, hand, hand it, you know, got to a road, stopped the first car, handed the guy three fifty eight hundred dollars, said drive, drive. The guy finds out that that was probably DB Cooper. Buries the money at Tina Bar, um, or you know, throws it in the Columbia or something. I. I, I don't think that the Tina Bar money is that important to the case. Um, I think there's some evidence that it, it was in, it wasn't. I don't think it was buried. I think it was definitely in the Columbia at some point. Just just from the deterioration of the bills, if I think if you had buried this money underground, the bills wouldn't have been as deteriorated as they were. Um, so so I I don't think it's that important to the case. Uh, I think there are probably more important things that should be looked at. I think it was just a, a really lucky coincidence that Brian Ingram found the money, and that it, that it ended up on Tina Bar. I don't think it's I don't think it's that important. Um, I just I just think it ended it ended how it ended up there. I don't think Cooper put it. If if Cooper was Jesse Lee Smith or William J Smith or anyone that wasn't living in the direct area, it doesn't make any sense that it, they would place it there. Or right one of their because there's no there's no way Jesse Smith went back, you know, in 1979 or 1980 to bury fifty eight hundred dollars on some beach. Doesn't make any sense. I think it's more possible that this money was could have been found by somebody, or um, Cooper gave it to somebody for helping him, and they realized, look, I can't ha- have this money anymore. I feel guilty about it. They threw it in the Columbia. Or they buried it at Tina Bar, but I don't. I don't. I don't think Cooper placed it there, and I don't think it's terribly important to the case. Okay. What about the drop zone and and the flight path? Because that's been debated pretty hotly. Well, let's just say forever. I was going to say recently, but yeah, no, it's it's always for the last forty nine years debated. I I think the they they had the general location, um if. First of all, there's there's no way he uh, flew out or he jumped from the plane in Oregon or Nevada or whatever. He he jumped in that general location at that general time. It's more probable to me that the jump zone is generally correct. They may they may have been off by a little bit, but that he just he got away and they weren't able to find anything. The FBI didn't begin their search till the next morning. You know he he jumps down. Gets out of the woods, flags a truck or whatever, or a car, and and gets back to Portland. Um, debating the drop zone by a couple miles or whatever isn't. You're not going to find anything. I think at least forty eight years down, so I, you're almost wasting your time on the argument. If they would have found a, you know, if hypothetically Cooper had died, which I don't see any evidence suggesting that he would have, they would, someone would have found something. Again, it wasn't a pop. It wasn't a. It wasn't like he jumped over Mount Rainier or something. He jumped in a populated area. Someone would have found something at some point by now if he had died or left behind 
evidence. So debating the drop zone by... I agree with you. Debating the drop zone and the flight path by a couple miles, it's more likely that he just got away. The FBI didn't start searching till the next morning. He had plenty of time to to get away, and that that's probably what happened. Do you think the bomb was real? Absolutely not. If you're buying dynamite, they don't sell dynamite in red red uh, tubes or whatever. Dynamite's usually a tan color. Je- Jesse Smith was, I mean, he was a plant electrician or worked as in electrical engineering in some facet at these plants. He could have taken a couple of spare wires, bought a ba- battery from a hardware store, a couple of uh, flares, and you've got yourself a bomb. It The bomb itself isn't the, uh, you know, he, the bomb could have looked probably worse than what Cooper had it had it as and still have gotten the same effect. Because if you're the pilot of that aircraft, if you're Captain Scott, you're it, it doesn't matter if he has a if he has a you know small c- case that f- fits in the palm of hand, he could say, This is a bomb in my hand. I could blow up this aircraft. It's gonna be the same situation. You have to take the same precautions. And the bomb looked real enough to a flight attendant who isn't skilled and She's, she doesn't work for um, she's she, Florence Schaffner and Tina Mucklow aren't bomb experts. They they weren't in the military. They weren't demolition experts. The bomb looked real enough to them, and that's all Cooper needed. He didn't show the he didn't need to show the bomb again. Uh, he didn't need to show the bomb to anyone else. It it got its intended effect, and he he got his money. So I think the it, if Cooper was to build a real bomb, it his his MO would have been completely different. Uh, he, he was calm, cool, collected. If I, you know, if I hijacked an aircraft and I built a real bomb and had it on my lap, um, I'd be sweating the entire time, especially if I have one wire here and one wire here. And if I touch them together, this bomb's going to explode. One wrong move, the case falls, you're all dead. Co- Cooper was sitting there smoking, joking, drinking. That, he wasn't... Uh, he wasn't nervous at all. And I think if I had a real bomb, whether, you know, how experienced I am, I would have been nervous because, you know, the bomb could go off at any, any moment. That's true. But what if they, what if they called him on it? Cause I, I agreed with you a hundred percent until recently. And Shana Roth has uh, kind of changed my mind a little bit about that. What if they called his bluff? You know, that's the, again, that's a what if question. Okay. What? Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, you can't really be in a liability position with an aircraft, and you know what if they called this bluff? Tell someone to prove it. Florence Schaffner, I when Jeffrey Gray interviewed her, she's still shaking about it. There's Florence Schaffner and Tina Muckler were probably too scared to, you know, ask. You know, hey, uh, is is your bomb there real? You know, what's he gonna say? You want me to demonstrate? <laughs> the bomb was probably fake, but. The captain, the flight attendants, they're going to take the precautions necessary to ensure that the sa- of the safety of the passengers. And, you know, again, that the bomb could have been, it, it could have been, you know, the size of the palm of his hand, and they probably would have taken the same precautions. With McCoy, he had a, you know, he was threatening them with a hand grenade. They took the same precautions, gave him more money. So, uh, I, the bomb was probably fake, but there's... There's no way they would have called his bluff. They wouldn't risk calling his bluff if it was real or fake. Yeah, there's way too much liability in that. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it wouldn't have made sense, especially in 1971 when these were common occurrences. Today, um, with TSA and everything, that, that may have been a legitimate question. That may be a legitimate question. But um, in 1971, no, no way it would have questioned him on it. What do you think about the fact that there are so many sketches? You know, there is that Unsolved Mysteries sketch with the Widow's Peak. There's the Bing Crosby sketch and, and sort of the Cary Grant sketch. It's frustrating. It's, it's one of the things that I think the FBI dug themselves into the ground with in terms of fi- quickly finding a suspect. Because I would probably happen. I mean, Jesse Smith doesn't really look like the, the uh, Bing Crosby sketch at all. And they had that out for a year or six months or whatever. And the best time to catch a suspect is right after it happens. So if they come out with that sketch, first of all, they're not going to be looking in Alabama. The sketch is completely off. I mean, even the um, the Cary Grant sketch isn't... It's closer, but it's not perfect. Um, it's, it's frustrating. And one of my biggest things that I've noticed... I've, I'm pretty new to the D.B. Cooper case. And one of the things I've noticed is just how people love to use those sketches for different suspects. For example, uh, <laughs> Sheridan Peterson and Kenneth Christensen, they love to use that Bing Crosby sketch and say, look, it's a direct match. But they, it, they don't match the other two sketches. With, uh, with William J. Smith, they match it to the Cary Grant sketch and say, well, you know, this guy's a perfect match. And with I, Dwayne Weber's laughable. They connect him to the, uh, the Unsolved Mystery sketch. And, you know, the, hair, the hairline, again, looks completely different. You know, the face is close, but it's, it's, it's kind of frustrating. The exception to that is probably William Gossett. He looks like both the Bing Crosby and the Cary Grant sketches, which I, I I'm, didn't even know that was possible, but <laughs> yeah, he's a deep. I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, he's, he's close with both and that, you know, maybe, maybe that's something, but it's a frustrating aspect of the case where you know, pe- people love to use the sketches to, they, they pin one sketch on the suspect and disregard the others. With some of the suspects, they get, some get a lot more attention than others. And people who aren't well-versed in this seem to fall into one of these suspects. And I'd like to talk about Rackstraw and McCoy. Yeah. And, and let's include Weber in that also. Weber and McCoy both shared one very distinguishable, very prominent feature. Both of them had ears that stuck out quite a bit. Uh, enough that if you met them at the bar and then the next day said, what did that guy look like? The first thing I would say is, oh yeah, McCoy and Weber, they both had these ears that stuck out. Would be the first thing I would say about those guys. Because it's a prominent feature. And I can't believe that Tina and Alice and Florence would say that they would, it wouldn't be the first thing that would come out of their mouth. Dude had huge ears. Absolutely. There and and Rockstraw, same thing. He was in his late twenties. Well, and with McCoy, Rockstraw and McCoy both are in their late twenties. You can't tell me that Tina, who was what twenty four or twenty five years old would confuse a 28-year-old guy with a 50-year-old guy, with a 45-year-old guy. I just don't buy that for a second. And 
I hear people all the time, oh, I know who D.B. Cooper was. It was McCoy. Oh, I know who it was. It was Rackstra. Oh, I know who it was. It was Weber. But absolutely, if you get on the forums and read the books that the people have written, those suspects fall apart the quickest. Yeah, it's all about money. They, they pour all this money and this airtime into Rackstraw, for example, and it's all speculation. They confronted Rackstraw in, I think that they did a History Channel documentary, and they confronted Rackstraw at, at, at like a marina or something, and they're, they're constantly like, oh yeah, tell us, you're D.B. Cooper, you're D.B. Cooper. And he's like, Ugh. I think he gets a kick. Rexro got a kick out of it. Oh, yeah, they think I'm D.B. Cooper again. And he said at the end of the thing, I didn't get on any Northwest Airlines flight. Like, that should be that should be enough. Why do you have to keep harassing the guy? He, he looks nothing. He, he doesn't really look like the sketch. And, and they tried, you know, they spent all, all this money on the documentary. And peop, that's all that's all people need. Oh, the History Channel ran this documentary. So it has to be true. You know, anytime a book comes out about a specific sp- suspect, Reka, for example, they love to talk about how, uh, you know, so- some guy remembered 45 years after the fact that he met Walter Reka in Clay Elm, which doesn't make any sense. Clay Elm's east, it's east of Seattle. There's no, there's no way Cooper got, <laughs> Cooper ended up there. It, it's, it's all about how much money they pour into documentaries and books and things like that. And you're right. Pe- people don't. Not everyone's a Cooperite. They, you know, they watch a documentary and say, "Okay, that's that's all I need to hear about the case." They d- they don't take the time and invest time in researching different suspects and learning about the case. Uh, they just go with what t- the TV's saying. So, you know, maybe it's a little frustrating, but that's that's just how the world works, I guess. What would it take to solve this case? Physical evidence. That's that. That's really it. You're gonna, yeah. You you would need physical evidence, a parachute, money, um, DNA, some something, because you know we're we're almost at the fiftieth anniversary, right? No one, all of the Cooper suspects, uh, with the exception of one or two, are are they're not around anymore. So it's no one's gonna come. No ninety-seven year old is gonna come out and say, "Oh yeah, I'm DB Cooper." That that's that's probably not gonna happen. So if, if you can locate physical evidence, that, that would maybe not solve the case in every instance, but it would, probably, it would probably come close at least. Why is it still unsolved? Well, there, there's two ways to say that it, it could be unsolved. Um, one is that just Cooper was such a great criminal. He, he was so, he covered all of his bases and just, he, he was able to evade authorities. Second reason why it's not solved is the FBI. The FBI, the FBI did a poor job in some circumstances. The sketches being one of them. Not searching until the next morning is one of them. When, when the pilots felt the, I guess the oscillation in the aircraft at eight thirteen, what the FBI should have done immediately is said, okay, there, the pilots in the cockpit are reporting that something weird occurred here. And send out agents from Portland immediately to that area. You may have had a shot at catching Cooper, but when you wait twelve hours, that's just giving that's just giving them a head Cooper head start. And I think toward especially recently when the when the case was still open and active, they just they didn't want to waste their time running fingerprints and things. I was listening 
uh, just yesterday to when you had Greg Gossett on, and he was saying that, you know, you have my father's fingerprints. Why don't you run them to what you have? And I, one of the FBI agents said, oh, well, that just means he could have been on a, on a previous flight. Like, what are, the ch- what are the chances that he was on the previous flight of that aircraft and then went on, used the same aircraft again to hijack it? I don't think that that, that, that actually happened. I think someone would have recognized him if he was on the same flight twice. So I think the FBI just kind of got after maybe 1990 just sort of gave up and didn't exhaust all their resources. It would be one thing if the FBI ran as many fingerprints as they could, did all of the searching they could, were proactive, and Cooper just got away. But the FBI kind of, they didn't, they stopped trying, which I think if they had tried a little bit more, they would have at least uncovered more evidence. And maybe we would have more to work on as citizens, but we don't. And I think the FBI could be to blame for some of that. If Jesse Smith is D.B. Cooper, why did he choose the name Dan Cooper when he boarded the plane? I, I have a couple theories on this. One of them is Cordalts, the Rayon company he worked for. It was a global firm. They had facilities in... It, it was a UK-based firm. They were based in England. So they had uh, factories in England, um, France, which is important, Pakistan... They had one in Cornwall, Canada, which is right next to, it, it borders on Quebec, which is French Canada. Um, it's possible that, you know, some, someone could have visited from, you know, someone from France, for example, a company representative could have visited the facility he worked at. That's a theory. Um, another interesting, maybe it's probably just a coincidence, but another interesting thing I found was Smith's paternal grandfather was an immigrant to Alabama from French Canada, which the reason that's interesting is that if you're immigrating from French, you know, throughout history, people have immigrated to America from French Canada. That's not unique, but it's the fact he went to Alabama. That's a little, little strange. Usually they go to Louisiana or New England. I've never heard of a French Canadian moving to Alabama. They're just so different in, I, I guess, cultures that... It 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 was a little strange to me, but anything's possible. I guess another thing that I think gets overlooked with the Dan Cooper comics, which, in my opinion, is it has to be the source of the name. It's just you have you have a comic book character character who's who parachutes out of planes, who flies planes, with the same name as the hijacker, who did essentially the same thing. That you know he could have picked any name. He could have picked David Johnson, you know, Stephen Andrews. He picked Dan Cooper, which is the name of a, it's, it's too much of a coincidence to ignore. I agree. I've said it a million times. There's an infinite number of male names. Absolutely. And to land on that one is it's pretty one of the nuts. Something that I think it's overlooked too with the comic is that post-World War II, the the U.S. Army was in the U.S. military was very active in Europe, uh, especially the countries of France and Belgium. They still are, especially in Belgium. And the Dan Cooper comics were, it was a Franco-Belgian comic. It was originally printed in France and Belgium. And in fact, there's a there's a Twilight Zone episode that revolves around a U.S. Army base in or U.S. Air Force base in France. 
So there were plenty of American servicemen in the Army and Air Force that were stationed over there in France and Belgium and could have been exposed to this comic at some point. And I've never seen that theory come up, which is which is because post-World War II, the U.S. Army was active in Europe, in Western Europe. So it's possible that there was some exposure there to the Dan Cooper comics. And another thing is with the Dan Cooper comics is when you read a comic book, how many, you know, are you really looking at the words? Because, you know, the comic was in French, but some people, not all people, but some people, when they read a comic book, they're just looking at the pictures the whole time. They're not, they don't care about the story or the, or the, or the words. So what, what's stopping an American serviceman in France or, or anybody really um, picking up this comic book because it looks cool and then just looking at the pictures. They can read Dan Cooper as the title. They don't necessarily need to know French. I just, I just, I've never seen that, that, that thought of before with the Dan Cooper comics. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, there wouldn't have been a lot of entertainment for dudes overseas. Like you were saying, they might see that it says Dan Cooper on the front. So, oh, maybe I'll be able to read that. Well, it's a comic book, so it doesn't take that much reading skill, but because of the name Dan Cooper, you picked it up. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's very possible. And if he's, you know, I don't, I'm not real familiar with what comic books they had in New Guinea, but it's very possible that he could have come across that comic book in his travels. Absolutely. And I, I also don't know, you know, his paternal grandfather was a French Canadian and it says on the census records that he spoke French. So it's, I mean, I don't know for sure. Um, Cindy didn't confirm it, but it's possible that French was passed down to some degree from grandfather to father to son. Um, I don't know, but it's, it's possible. I, yeah, it's, it's a possibility that Jesse Smith or really anyone in America with military experience could have been exposed to this comic. Even if you lived in, you know, Ohio or whatever, and took a trip to French Canada, you could have been exposed to this comic. Have you spoke to any other family members or just Cindy? I've just spoken to Cindy. Cindy, I don't want to. I think it's very. I think it's. I don't think it's right to contact and harass family members. If you know, maybe at some point down the line, I will maybe send an email or a letter or something saying, you know. You know, I've, I've learned about your father, you know, I'd be interested to learn a little bit more. Um, if you don't want to contact me, you don't have to. I think, I think it's improper when people harass family members, especially if they say, you know, look, I don't want to talk to you. Um, Cindy's been very forthcoming. She, she posted on Reddit, look, I think my father's D.B. Cooper. So that's, that, that's one thing, you know, obviously I'll start a dialogue if that's, that's the case. If you start, if you advertise that you think your father's D.B. Cooper, that's one thing. But if you if you're not if you're not saying that if you're not posting that, and you want to be left alone, I think you should be left alone if your father's D.B. Cooper or otherwise. Yeah, I think that's a good way to go about it. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't think it's I don't think because even if you get a little snippet of information, is it what's what's the cost almost? You know. I don't want to start harassing people because I have this theory about their father or their grandfather. You know, I, I can only imagine if, you know, you know, 
I got a letter saying, oh, I think your your grandfather's uh, the Zodiac Killer. I, I, that it's not 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 that I'm comparing the Zodiac Killer and DB Cooper, but it's still just I wouldn't want to get that letter, and I'm sure uh, Jesse Smith's children or grandchildren wouldn't want to get that letter either. So I just want to be mindful of of them. So speaking of the Zodiac, do you think there's any connections between DB Cooper and the Zodiac Killer? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'd say there, I'll say there's two different types of Cooper suspects. There's ones where there's circumstantial cases, which there is for a, a fair amount of them. Um, and there's ones where it's, you know, you know, people say, oh, well, it was a conspiracy theory with the government and Frank Morris is D.B. Cooper. And some, some of them are just a little a little out there. Um, there's there's no way I don't think the Zodiac Killer and D.B. Cooper are the same person. Uh, the sketches aren't the same. Some people try to say they are. I don't see a connection. The, the Zodiac Killer's uh, MO is completely different from D.B. Cooper's. You know, the, the Zodiac Killer, Killer constantly sends letters, and, you know, obviously there were D.B. Cooper letters, but there's no way to know for certain if they were him. You know, the Zodiac Killer called the police after his crimes. You know, I, there, I don't see a connection. I don't think it's a legitimate comparison. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't see a connection. What do you think about the letters, the D.B. Cooper letters? Well, really after, after any big crime like that, you're gonna, at least in 1971, you're going to see people send in a letter. Oh yeah. This, I mean, if you think about D.B. Cooper on the plane, he's calm, reserved, polite. He, he does not seem like the type of person to land and, and, send a letter in and you know, at least for Jesse Smith, my suspect, I guess um, he lives in Alabama. If he's, if a letter came in from mobile Alabama to uh, the Seattle post intelligencer, they're they're automatically going to send that to the FBI and the FBI is going to be looking down there. So it's, I'd say most of the letters were probably just 16 year olds playing a prank Oh, let me clip out some magazine headings and say I'm D.B. Cooper and this will be kind of fun. I, I do think that there's maybe a small possibility that Rackstraw sent in one of the letters trying to take credit for it. Um, I, I, I don't believe I, it may not be 100 percent, but he may have sent in one of the letters. I think that there's maybe an argument for that. I don't believe he's D.B. Cooper. I think he might have just been try- trying to take credit, but I, I, I don't think D.B. Cooper had anything to do with those those letters. I don't think that was who he was as a person to send in letters to a newspaper or the FBI. Yeah. He seemed to be so careful with his evidence, but then to write a letter, I, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Cause I mean, a letter gets sent in and, you know, obviously the newspaper is probably going to forward it to the FBI and then, you know, they'd have a fingerprint maybe, or they might not, obviously they probably weren't getting DNA, but they would have at least had a fingerprint. That, that just doesn't seem like something he would do at all. Yeah, and I think a couple of the letters are signed D.B. Cooper, and one is just a rich man, I think. Yeah, I... If I have that correct. Yeah, it's... It, it's probably just some... six. I mean, 16, 17-year-old kid thinks it's funny to clip out some magazine headings. You know, the system that beats the system, and, you know, 
oh, I'm here in Vancouver, and it was probably just a prank. They're pro- most of them were probably just a prank. Rackstraw may have sent in the one. That that's that's how I look at it. Yeah, and you know, Rackstraw and McCoy both to go back to why they're not the best suspects. They were both in police custody after the hijacking. And I think that if there was anything that could have linked them to that hijacking, they would have pinned it on him, especially McCoy. Yeah, I but was, they couldn't do it. I was reading something like, uh, I guess in the book, D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy, they, they were trying to claim, oh, well, uh, some medallion was left on board with his initials from Brigham Young. I, I haven't heard that before. I don't know if they were just putting it out there to try to sell the book. But I, if McCoy had really left, and that's a McCoy thing to do is just leave stuff on board. If he had just left his medallion with his initials on it from Brigham Young, I mean, the FBI would have been done in a day. I, I don't... It's just Rackstraw McCoy. They're suspects, but they're not, they're not good suspects. They're too young. Rackstraw and McCoy are too completely have two completely different MOs from the, from Dan Cooper. Um, they, they just don't, they don't, they don't strike me as, as Dan Cooper's at all. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I, I don't think Rackstraw could have kept his composure for six or six, eight hours or whatever. Um, I think he, he would have, he would have blown up at some point, started waving the bomb around. I, McCoy would have made more mistakes. D.B. Cooper didn't even really make a mistake, in my opinion. McCoy would have left stuff on board, made a mess. There's really no substantial evidence connecting them to the crime. Do you think it's possible that McCoy was tutored by the real D.B. Cooper? No, no, not at all. Uh, Rich, McCoy did it out of, you know, I I read about McCoy. He hit, he did it. He had he did it out of desperation, really. You know, he he needed money, and he he had he was you know telling friends, oh well, you know, if I were to do something like this, I'd request more money, and I'd do it this way. And I, if the real DB Cooper, whoever he is, had tutored Richard McCoy, Richard McCoy would not have made such a mess of himself during the hijacking. He would have known to collect all of his letters. He would have known to. He would have not probably not used a hand grenade and a handgun to threaten the crew. He would have been a lot more reserved. He would have probably not requested so much money. Although McCoy landed with all of the money, if I remember correctly, he didn't lose any of it. So right, yeah. So I, there's there's no way, in my opinion, that. McCoy and the real D.B. Cooper are connected in any way. All right, now to change topics wildly. Do you think that that money could have been spent, that Cooper's money could have been spent? Some of it. I, I, be- I believe some of it ended up in circulation. And it, if perhaps he got on the ground with more of the money, you know, maybe, you know, maybe he did get on the ground with $200,000 and then just gave it out to, gave some of it to different people, um, the money would have been spent. Yet another way the FBI screwed up is how they release the serial numbers. They release them in non-sequential order. No one is going to 
no no bank, no casino is going to uh, look at every single serial number of every 20 that was deposited or given to them. It, so there, I think, especially if, it, let's say it's Jesse Smith, he, he, went, he could have gone back to Alabama, and no one down there is going to look for D.B. Cooper money. They probably didn't even get um, – they probably didn't. They might not have even gotten the FBI list or whatever of all of the, all of the numbers on the bills. So he he could have probably spent the money. I think slowly and over time, because uh, obviously he wasn't a rich man. If he just shows up at a bank with stacks of twenties, they're going to suspect something. If he shows up at a casino with that amount of money, they they might suspect something. Um, and certainly his friends might suspect something. So, but I think if he spent it slowly, methodically, and over time, he he would have gotten away with it. Yeah, I agree with that. How how would they track the money? Like you said, it was a physical list of non sequential serial numbers. Oh, uh, I, I don't ten thousand of them. Yeah, there's there's no way there's no way that any bank, any casino, you know, if the Seattle National or Portland National Bank was like, oh, we, we want to catch D.B. Cooper, and they were willing to help. There's, I still don't think they would have taken the time to go through every serial number. I think the FBI would have had more luck if they had maybe take because they released that list pretty quickly. I think if they had taken the time, maybe a week, to organize all of the uh, numbers or whatever, you know, maybe they have would have lost, you know, that week, but in the long run, they, banks and casinos at least had a sequential and easier to reference list of of numbers because n- no bank, no casino, no store is going to look through ten thousand sequences of numbers. I don't. No person would want to do that. I wouldn't do it, no matter how much money you paid me. That's just. It's almost mean to do that. To an employee, <laughs> I mean to do that. I maybe, like that. Maybe they could get a prisoner or something to do. That. <laughs> Prisoners. Yeah. Oh, so Dan condones slave labor of finding the Cooper money. <laughs> well, maybe nineteen seventy-one, but now, now there's a website for it. So uh, if you if you stumble upon a nineteen sixty-nine twenty-dollar bill, I would type those numbers in. But so, w- what do you do next, Dan? What are you going to do with this? Are you going to keep working on it? Are you going to write a book? Uh, no, no. What's no, your plan? No way to write a book. Um, there, there's. I think there's almost too many books out there about DB Cooper and about DB Cooper suspects that it's kind of been saturated a little bit. I think if I, even if I wrote a book, first of all, it wouldn't be very good. I'm not a polished writer, and it probably wouldn't sell very well because of just how many DB Cooper books there are. I would probably just keep learning about this guy because you know i've i mean I, I know quite a bit i've made a lot of connections between cooper and 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 jesse smith but i think there's still more to learn about this guy and i still think i have a good circumstantial case i don't think i i you know maybe i'd send it into the fbi maybe I, I only I almost don't even see a point at this it just wouldn't I don't think it would really make a lot of sense they really don't the FBI have shown recently that they don't 
have an interest in the case. They all they want is physical evidence. They're not interested unless you have the money or the parachute. I mean, with William Smith, I use that as an example. I mean, that was a really good circumstantial case that's been researched and documented. If I was the FBI, I wouldn't just and that got sent into the FBI. I wouldn't just, you know, throw it in the trash or file it or whatever. I mean, you have you have his fingerprints. Would it really kill them to take, you know, 25 minutes, an hour to run the fingerprints? I don't think so. But I they've shown to not really have an interest anymore. And it's it's kind of just up to the civilian sleuths to solve and discuss the case. The FBI's kind of just given up. And can we do it? I I think I think we we can if if there's enough of us and if it doesn't die because a lot of the Cooper researchers um who have done great work aren't aren't getting any younger and there's a lack of younger younger people like myself who are interested in the case that that's a problem cuz to see this case die would be a real it would suck really um you know, just a couple months ago, I'm sure you watched it, the the Let Me Know video on YouTube. Yes, I certainly did. It was, that was really, it was really well made. It wasn't focused on a specific suspect. It gave all the facts really well. And it was, I mean, it was incredible animations and things. And that seemed to get, I mean, it was a very popular video made by a very skilled, uh, skilled person. And that seemed to generate some interest with, especially with younger people who spend a lot of time on YouTube, but out of the 3 million people who watch that video, there may, you know, maybe there'll be five people who look into the case further and decide to invest a significant amount of time in it. I think if enough, if enough people are working on this case, if enough people want to keep it alive, we could solve it. It, it, or we could get more evidence at least because I mean the tie evidence which I think is the most it, it's some of the best evidence in the case for sure that only came out a couple years ago so if we if we can get enough people working on it people with different skills you know maybe a uh, I can't really think of anything offhand but you know someone with a specific skill set that they can contribute to the case. You know, Tom Kay is a, a paleontologist, I think. A lot of skills he can contribute. If we get more people like that, we could at least get more evidence. We could get more theories. We can get more, even more suspects. Because, you know, some people don't like to be, su- you know, they don't like to focus on suspects, which I understand. But suspects fuel the case a little bit. You know, even if you don't like Jesse Smith, which there are things about him, which, you know, maybe don't add up perfectly. You could still take something, you know, maybe because I re- I mentioned he worked in for a fertilizer company. He worked for a rayon manufacturer. Maybe, you know, there's a rayon plant in California that you happen to know about. And you just think, oh, well, you know, my grandfather worked in a rayon plant. I'm not saying it's your grandfather, but maybe you could start looking into that and ask him questions and, and things like that. And contribute something to the case. My biggest fear is that we figure out who it was, but don't get to know the story. And 
it bothers me with Jesse Smith even even a little bit too because if he only had that one conversation with his daughter when he was under the influence and then came back and was like, eh, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Well, now he's dead. So if it really is Jesse Smith, I don't get to find out what happened when his feet hit the ground Yeah, from jumping out of that airplane. And, and that really does bug me. The idea that this is solved, but not to my satisfaction, <laughs> just not being able to know the story. The idea that it's solved without the story, I don't know if I could take that. I would rather it be unsolved than know who it is without the story. Yeah, you know. What do you think about that? That's valid. I'm maybe I think a little bit differently. I think if, for example, let let's say hypothetically we find someone finds a couple twenty dollar bills in Southern Alabama. Well, I, you know, there's enough of a circumstantial case to say Jesse Smith probably put those there. That would that would probably be enough for me. I you know the story is important obviously, and I would love to know you know what happened when you got down. How did you get back to Portland? How'd you uh, escape the police in, in Portland? How'd you get home? That, you know, what's the motive? Those are all important, and I would love to know the answer to that. That pro- That's probably not n- not going to happen, because all the Cooper suspects are either, have either passed away, or they're 95 and older. I don't think, you know, there's still a possibility it could be solved, but we probably will never know the story. Oh, you're killing me, Dan. <laughs> well, it, it it it's 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 unfortunate. I th- I think you know it, it is unfortunate. I mean, I would love to know the story, and who know who knows? Maybe you know, maybe DB Cooper is someone we haven't even thought of yet, and they wrote a detailed description of what happened and put it put it in a safe somewhere. So we may we may still find out. We may just. You know, Jesse Smith could have just been an average guy who just so happened to have some connections to D.B. Cooper. Kenneth Christensen could have just been a flight attendant. The, one of the things that, you know, keeps me awake on this case is that we D.B. Cooper has already been suggested as a suspect. And, you know, it could have been disregarded as, oh, well, it's not him because of this. Or it could have been someone the FBI looked at and said, oh, well, you know, He's two inches taller than what they're saying. I don't think it's him. Part, part of me almost thinks that D.B. Cooper has been found and suspected of being D.B. Cooper, but isn't, isn't considered a suspect for specific, re- for specific reasons or, or he's a suspect we are, that's already been promoted as a suspect, but not everyone is on board. So... You know, it's, I would love to see this case solved. I think it can be solved, but I think it will be very difficult to be solved. And you're not confident it will be solved to my satisfaction, which is a bummer. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm bearer of bad news, I guess. But I mean, that's just my, that's just my theory. I mean, it's possible that, you know, the real Dan Cooper told somebody everything that happened. And that person could still be alive and well. Someone could find the real Dan Cooper and say, oh, 
so and you know that person could have passed away but have kept a detailed record of everything that happened or kept a little bit of the money to prove that they they are Dan Cooper or kept the parachute in a closet somewhere i mean there's a, there's a lot we don't know and there will probably be more suspects in the future i mean there will probably be 50 more episodes of the Cooper Vortex with 42 more suspects all of which with a pretty convincing argument as to why they are who why they could be db cooper yeah i think i think you're right dan you know as much as i want to know the full story i do agree with you i think every day that has gone by we're less and less likely to know the actual story um but does it get solved it it might um if it does get solved and i don't get to know the story it'll be a bummer but We'll move on, I guess. Yeah, it's all right, Dan. What haven't we covered yet? I I do ha- I've I have a page of notes here. I mean, I have a few more things, like small things about Jesse Smith, I could share. Um, but aside from that, I think we've covered we've covered all the big things. Uh, you know how I connected the chemicals and uh, his military experience and things, and so so I think I've covered most of the the major points I have. Are there any minor points you want to cover? Just uh, a few more things, I guess, that I've I've noticed or sort of hypothesized from what I know about the D.B. Cooper case. Uh, in the FBI, I guess you could say, records of the case, um, you know, a big hypothesis was that Cooper could have been Catholic because he, he smoked and he drank, but he didn't use any profane language. Um, Jesse Smith was a Catholic, buried in Catholic cemetery. Thought that was interesting. In terms of rayon production... Uh, where he was working in 1971. Um, Rayon emits a lot of carbon disulfide, CS2, and a main side effect of that is heart disease. And I believe Tom Kay or someone was hypothesizing that um, Cooper was taking some kind of medication for something. Could have been heart disease. I believe a heart condition was thrown out there as a possibility. Um, I don't know if Jesse Smith had a heart condition. He did live to be 95. So... Maybe, maybe not. Uh, another thing that I found kind of interesting was, again, the clip-on tie, which I think is interesting. I think it might be... Additionally, um, in a work environment, it's very practical, especially for someone who's working with electrical grids and in sort of maybe a messy environment. Uh, you could take it on, throw it back on again. Uh, you don't need to be wearing it 24-7. Also, I mean, a clip-on tie is probably probably a little bit cheaper and you know with seven kids in the house a wife bills to pay a clip on tie might have been an economical choice along with the Raleigh cigarettes uh titanium which i thought was uh obviously the titanium particles have generated a lot of discussion they use titanium in rayon production uh one of the benefits of titanium is that it doesn't corrode and in both fertilizer production and ran production there's a lot of corrosive chemicals involved so it's possible that the titanium particles could have come from a, a machine or something that was in that environment that needed to be anti-corrosive just it's just a theory but I, I i think it's a possibility and obviously in uh, pensacola where he was working with the in the fertilizer industry they found titanium at the site when the EPA tested it. So there's a connection there. 
but I, I think those are those are most of the minor points. He he did not grow up with a lot of money. Grew up very poor. Uh, so I've looked at census records from you know the 30s and the 40s. The family did not have much money. He grew up. He did not grow up with a lot. He enlisted in the army as soon as he turned 18, perhaps as a means to you know make some money and send it back home. And this could have been another incident or you know DB Cooper hijacking. Again, he probably needed money, maybe not just for himself, but for family members. He had uh, eight siblings, parents who were alive at the time, seven kids. Someone in the family may have may have needed money. He might have been the most he might may have been mo- the most apt to carry something like this out. And maybe another. I mean, the DB Cooper hijacking took place on Thanksgiving Eve, so a lot of one of the uh, things that gets discussed is well. If, if he's a D.B. Cooper suspect, he would have been there. Was he there the next day on Thanksgiving? Um, Jesse Smith's fa- entire family lived in southern Alabama. I have no doubt they were all together for Thanksgiving. And with and he had eight siblings, and most, if not all of them, had quite a few kids. So you're talking about perhaps 100-plus people at a Thanksgiving, maybe somewhere around there. That would have been, you know, I don't want to say that he would have been missed necessarily, but it perhaps could have been explained away as, you know, you know he's not feeling well or he he went on a little trip or something. Or maybe people in his family knew. I don't know. But that th- those are just some interesting maybe coincidences I found um, regarding Jesse Smith. You've done a lot of really good work on this, Dan, and you're a really sharp guy. Thank you. I'm very impressed by you. I look forward to all the uh, work that I hope you'll continue to do on this case. And, by the way, if you want um, to be on the D.B. Cooper forum, I I might know a guy. You might know D.B. Cooper? <laughs> <laughs> no, I might know someone that can help yeah. you get on that forum, though. Yeah, I... I, I had like set up an account and then you needed like an uh, authorization email or something. Um, and I, I kind of didn't get past that point. So yeah, there's a lot of slippery people inside the Cooper vortex. I, I've, I've heard horror stories, you know, people promoting something and constantly getting, uh, you know, it's, it's not taken too favorably, but I, I still think it would be, it's, it's still a great source for discussion on the case. And there's a lot of devoted people on there, you know, regardless of who their suspect is or why they're on there. I think there's still a lot of great discussion that goes on. Definitely. Well, Dan, thanks for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. It was great to talk to you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I mean, this, you know, I've been a fan of the podcast before and it's, it's really, it's great to be great to have the opportunity to come on. So thank you. If uh, if people want to tell you that you're wrong about everything, or they want to tell you that you got everything right, is there somewhere where they can do that? So if if you want to just share my email, that's probably the best place to contact me. Uh, if I just start getting spam from people, I can just delete it or whatever. But that's probably the best place to contact me is through my email. All right. Well, I will put it in the show notes. I won't read it aloud right now. So if you do want to get a hold of Dan, you'll have to take one extra step and click on the show notes before you harass him. Yes. Well, thanks again for coming on, Dan. I appreciate it. Yes, thanks for having me on. 
If you'd like to reach out to Dan, you can find his email in the show notes. Is there a suspect we haven't covered yet or a theory you think we got wrong? Let us know. You can find us on Facebook. We are The Cooper Vortex. Instagram, at The Cooper Vortex. On Twitter, at DB Cooper Podcast. Or email us, dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Dan Bear for coming on the show and doing the work that I wouldn't. Thank you to Russell Colbert for doing the work that I couldn't. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.